Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Good to be back home. Good to see you all. Where have you all been? Oh, wait. We were the ones who were gone. Anyway, it's good to see you. It's always good to be back. Thank you, Brother Danny, for filling in last week. It's a joy to have you do that, brother. I know the church was blessed and uh, really appreciated that very much. It's wonderful to have uh, people who can fill in and things just keep moving. Isn't that great? That's the way we want it to be. And speaking of thanks, we want to make sure we thank those of you who spend great amount, great amount of energy out there cutting the grass, trimming the verge. Really appreciate that very much. It really looks really wonderful as you spend so much time on doing that. And if I'm sure that the uh, guys who are doing that would love to have some help. So if you have some time, you can uh, see Pastor Hamp and he'll point you in the right direction and uh, be, a, be a real help to us all. Um, tonight, youth are gathering at 6 p.m. We're in the midst of our Chosen series and really enjoying that. It's been fun for Debbie and me being with the, the young people. They're a blessing to us, and I think they've been having a good time, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're getting a couple yes. Yes is back there. Um, we have to bop them on the head a couple times. Sometimes the other kids bop the other ones on the head, and that we don't allow, but anyway, I'm just kidding about that. But we've had a great time. New announcement here, special business meeting, uh, May 23rd, okay, May 23rd, um, that will be after the second service, there's uh, there are some updates that need to be done for the building, and uh, Linda Schwartzwelder has been working hard on that, putting together kind of a budget over a couple things, and so she wants to present that to you as the church, and just get your thoughts about it, and that's going to be on the 23rd, we'll mention that more as the time gets closer. Uh, tomorrow night, I don't want you to miss this, and I hope this, what I'm going to say to you, is not going to be too confusing because some things I haven't mentioned yet. Tomorrow night is the mulch spreading party, okay, at the playground. Does that sound like an oxymoron? Okay, it's not. Mulch spreading party right down here at the playground. Neil and Thea have asked you to come. 6 p.m., and I guess all of those of you who have been working on the playground, um, looks great. Lots of people that are coming. And so want to continue to make it look great and keep it nice for the neighbors. Uh, the rain date is going to be Thursday at 6 p.m. Okay, So tomorrow night is what we're praying for. That's when we want to get it done. But Thursday night at 6 p.m. is the rain date. Now, with that being said, I haven't announced this yet, but it's been in my heart that Thursday is also the National Day of Prayer. And I really don't want us to go by without having a time of prayer as a church on the National Day of Prayer. Right? That makes sense. So... Thursday, if it does not rain, we're going to meet in here at 6.30 okay, and have our time of prayer. If it does rain tomorrow night, then we'll have our playground mulch spreading party on Thursday, but we'll do our prayers down there. okay? And that could be pretty neat, too, as we're trying to get some people from the community to come as well and uh, be a part of, of the church at some point. We'd love to have that happen. Uh, but maybe we can encourage them to be a part of our time of prayer also. Now, they're going to pray tomorrow night, certainly. But anyway, is that really confusing? Okay, good. No, so here we go again. Tomorrow night is the mulch spreading party at 6 p.m. If it rains, Thursday. Okay? On Thursday, we're going to have prayer for National Day of Prayer regardless, one way or the other. Okay? Good. Wonderful. Confused. Perfect. Now, the other thing is uh, Lincoln would works for Sam's, you know, and he often blesses us with things that just need to go to benevolent organizations. And so, again, he's done two things. One is to provide a bunch of masks. And for those of you who want those, uh, shields, kids' masks, there's a bunch of stuff out in the foyer right there. Uh, Pastor Hamp can get that to you. Um, take all that you want. 
And uh, that'll be a blessing to them, and uh, certainly we won't keep them around here. But he literally has a pallet full of these things. So uh, please take those. The other thing is, on the back of Pastor Ham's truck, nope, they're gone. Oh, well, see, the first, I told him. I made an announcement this morning that Sam's also donated a truckload of uh, gardenias, and they're gone. I told the first service you were going to be ticked about that. I told him. So I'm off the hook. So you can fuss at them if you want. They did not save one for you. Can you believe that? I'm just shocked. I thought somebody would certainly say, no, you know what? We need to think about those other people. Those poor, pitiful people in the second service. They should have one of these gardenias, but they didn't leave anything for you. That is just not Christian love, is it? You just wait till next Sunday. Oh, you're in... See? It's just getting bad all the way around. We'll just drop it right there because we don't want to start a fight. All right, anyway. So just forget about the gardenias. Forget about the fact that the first service took them all from you. And don't mention it, okay? And so everything will be good. All right. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Father, we thank you for the joy of gathering. We thank you for laughter. We thank you for fun. Lord, we thank you for what we just sang. Lord, you have rescued us. Lord, may we never forget that. I pray that that would resound in our hearts every single day, that we are free people because you have come to give your life for us. Lord, may our hearts just explode with joy, thanking you and praising you for what you have done. And now, Lord, we come to receive more instruction because we want to be the best disciples we can possibly be. We want to be the best and most faithful followers we can be. And so teach us, we pray. Lord, show us things that we don't know. Help us to understand things we don't discern well. And give us the meaning that you want us to know this morning. And uh, we will praise you morning, noon, and night because of what you have done. And so we thank you and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, stand with me, if you will. Let's read our text. We're back in Matthew chapter, 20, uh, chapter 8, verse 23 through 27 is our next section. And, of course, all this ties together, and you'll see that in just a moment. Beginning in verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Amen. You may be seated. So we're coming now to, at least in my opinion, one of the most well-known passages of Scripture that there is. And and I say that because, not because you may be necessarily well-versed in all of Scripture, but because you've probably at least heard of this story of Jesus calming the water. And that's enough to stick in your mind because just nobody can do that kind of thing unless he be God. And that's what we're going to see again this morning. But secondly, I think there's an irony in this that most people remember, and that is that as this storm is raging, the Lord is asleep in the boat. And that just doesn't make sense. And so often our minds will stick on things like that to help us to remember them. What's really the most important part of all of this, though, is to remember that 
the Lord of the elements is capable of doing everything. And that's what I've titled it this morning is the Lord of the elements because of everything we've already been saying is he is the Lord and there is nothing that is impossible with him. Brother Danny told you last week that uh, the reason I was out is because I was on a father-son retreat with my boys. This was the first year in quite a few years. In fact, we couldn't remember how long it's been since all of us were able to be together to go on this retreat. I started taking our oldest son when he was six. He's now 33, and uh, it's just been a joyful occasion for us way out in Western Carolina. It's a place called the Wilds, if you've heard of that or not. Um, But we have been greatly blessed by going and doing that. And so as the other boys got old enough, I began to take them. They had to be six years of age at least. And um, being somewhat selfish with that, in fact, I remember saying to Nathan when he was a little guy, um, you know, there are some other dads with some sons that probably would really enjoy this. What if we were to ask them to come with us and we'll make it like a father-son big thing from the church? And and his little face, he was probably seven or eight at the time. He just kind of looked down like this. He said, well, if you think we should, Dad. And that was all I needed to know. I was like, so sorry, we've been selfish <laughs> with that <laughs> because of just that. And, and uh, right or wrong, it's been a wonderful time of memories for us. And uh, one of the things that we've enjoyed most about it is not only the whole time together, uh, but there's a lake on the property. It's a couple acres in size, a man-made lake. And in the middle of it, there's an, an island. And you can paddle out there with a canoe or a paddle boat and Uh, When Nathan was little, the first year we were there, uh, we found this little tree that came out of one trunk and it had three branches to it. And as a dad, you know, I was giving him a spiritual lesson, trying to define the Trinity for him. And, and of course, that doesn't define the Trinity, okay? So you can't just look at a tree and say, oh, here's the Trinity. Uh, Don't ever do that. But it certainly does give us some kind of illustration for our minds. And so I was sharing with him that. And so from that year, we began to carve the year that we were there in the side of the tree. Take out our pocket knife, you know, because it was a manly weekend and and I would, uh, he wouldn't as a little guy, but uh, we would carve the year in there. And so I want to show you a picture of that just because it's it's special to me. Uh, Here's the crew. We were all able to go. This is dad with all of the great rain gear on provided by these two guys who are in the military. So dad was nice and dry the whole time. That was wonderful. Uh, This is our son, Nathan, the one I was just talking about. This is Christian, who's next, and then Jordan, our next one. And the next picture is the picture of the tree right here. Again, here, this is us out on the little island. It's not very big, but you'll see the number 21 right there. Uh, This is the Trinity tree, if you will. Uh, Someone has cut off a part of the Trinity right here, so um, don't be worried by that. Uh, God is is still okay. Um, He's not not alarmed by this. So we'll be all right. We were alarmed, but God is not alarmed. But on this particular tree is the one I was talking about, and we have all the years beginning from, I think it was 95-ish, something like that. I'm not doing the math well. Um, up, Up the side of the tree, you can see now it's grown mostly into the, you can't see it on the picture, but... On the side of closest to me there uh, are the numbers of the years that we have gone by, and so we dug this one in this year. And so it's a very, very special time of year for us. And as I was uh, preparing to go on this trip, I'm often looking at the weather because who wants to go on a camping trip when it's storming, right? Well, guess what? The one day we were to be there is the only day it was supposed to storm. 
100% storm, and not just rain a little bit, but download rain. And certainly it did. And so um, we were a little bit frustrated by that. I was frustrated probably more than the boys were. In fact, I said to them, guys, here's the deal. It's supposed to rain. Are you sure you want to go? Because I'm remembering in my mind that as little guys, that would have not been fun for them. And certainly not fun for me. But now that they're grown, they're adults, uh, our youngest son said to me, if it ain't raining, we ain't training. Okay, so that's a military term that those of you who've been out in the field in the rain and the training understand all that. So I said, okay, I guess we're going then. And so we went, and sure enough, it did rain, buckets of rain. But still, I prayed. I said, Lord, you know, I know you're God. You have the ability. You could just give us a little window of sunshine during this time while we're there. Because I was thinking, again, you have the ability to do that. I knew I couldn't do it. Because only God can do that kind of thing. And so my trust was in him to do just that. But lo and behold, the Lord evidently decided that that was not going to be the case. And so he didn't clear up the rain for us. But what that did is it helped me kind of go into the mind of the disciples here for a minute. All of this. And helped me to realize some things that they may have been thinking about. One was, we're caught in a horrific storm And we know God can do something about it. What they didn't know, and we're going to see that from this text, is that that God that they were trusting in was in the boat with them. And so let's look at that this morning. I've divided this section up into four parts. First is going to be the determined disciples. And I'm going to give you this again. The determined disciples, the distressed disciples, the dominating Lord, and the dismayed disciples disciples. So let's look at this first one in verse 23, the determined disciples. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now I want to make a point of clarification here for your sakes. I said something incorrect two weeks ago in that the disciples had gone across the lake when they encountered the three men that they did last time. That was incorrect. Those three men came up to them before they actually made their journey across the lake. Okay, just so you understand that. Um, And so now what we're seeing here in the text is they're getting into the boat and the disciples are following them. So Matthew says they did just that and they go to the other side of the lake. And now just so you understand their undertaking, uh, if you've ever been there, you know this, or if you've studied this in depth, you'll know that the lake of uh, the Sea of Galilee is roughly about 13 miles long. So it's pretty big, but it's eight miles wide. In some places, that's really big, at least in my opinion, especially to be called a lake. And so in this journey, this would be something that the Lord would really need, I would think, because after all, he's been doing everything that we've been watching up to this point. He's man, he's God come in the flesh, but yet still fully man. So he would be exhausted, I would think, by doing what he was doing. And Mark tells us in Mark 4.35 that it was evening. And so not only had they been ministering and doing all these amazing things, at least the Lord had, the disciples there with him, he was no doubt just exhausted from all of that. And so the disciples evidently took over. We know that from the little bit of reading we just did. And they get into this little fishing boat, much like what you've seen in the Chosen series. And if you've studied this before, you know this as well. Let me show you a little picture of what what it is. This is this is an actual photograph of Jesus and the disciples right here. This is Jesus. And their boat, and uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, those guys. Um, But notice they didn't have, I'm joking about that. This is not an actual picture. 
This is a, a replica. And I just want you to see what they were in, or at least really close to what they were in. Uh, notice they didn't have the, the standard boat motors. Uh, they did have these things, Johnson, Evinrude, you know, Mercury, those kind of things right there. Uh, but they didn't have anything other than that. And so you can imagine traveling the distance they did would have been a pretty excruciating journey, but obviously something they were capable of doing. And we're told here in Mark 4, now this is not in Matthew, but I mentioned this two weeks ago, Mark 4:36, that there were many people, disciples were told, who were following them. Lots of people. But what I want to say to us this morning for a few minutes is, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this first two parts, is that not every person who's referred to in Scripture is a true disciple. And I want you to hear this. Because a disciple, in fact, the word disciple really just is a generic word for a student or a follower. You could be referring to anybody as a disciple, somebody uh, that is just following a teacher, and not necessarily with spiritual significance. Now, we don't particularly think like that, and that's why I'm bringing this up. Lots of these people were called disciples because they were following him. Many who stopped following him when things began to be very challenging and costly. And that's why we make the distinction between the true disciples and the false ones. So just understand, just to be called a disciple doesn't mean you're necessarily a real follower of God. It could be that you're just learning, uh, really, from anybody. And so we could say that the people who followed then were different kinds of disciples. In fact, I would rather say, I would speculate, or at least assume, that there were many of them who were just curious disciples. You know what that is, those kind of people that are intrigued by this mysterious man, not fully invested in him, uh, not really understanding him, not certainly not surrendered to him, but, but curious, curious about what he was doing and probably what else he could do. I mean, after all, if they'd been with him just up to this point, they would have been more than amazed at his ability. And so the thinking logically would be, what else is he going to do? Let's follow and see. So there's the curiosity part. I think there were some who were overwhelmed by the excitement of Jesus' ability, kind of like that circus sideshow, or maybe even the main attraction. I call them the fans of Jesus, the people who are the followers, yes, but more so because they're excited about the stardom that comes from being a follower of Jesus, and especially in this case, because remember, they didn't know what was happening in this. We, You and I have the benefit of knowing what's going on, but these people certainly did, did not, at least many of them. Then there's a third group, some who I think were convinced in their minds, but not in their hearts. These are the people I'll call the intellectual disciples. They have a good mental knowledge of what's going on, pretty clear, pretty... Uh, accurate about what they're thinking and what they're seeing, but their heart still has not engaged in who Jesus really is. Then there's another group who is, who are those people who are convinced and ready to follow, but they're secret in their discipleship. In other words, they're just not ready for people to know about them, and I call them the covert disciples. People who Say that, yes, this is the Lord, I believe in him, but I really don't want anybody to know that I believe in him. 
And then, of course, there's the last group, which is the true believers, doing whatever the Lord asks and still learning from him and who he is. And, you know, I can't help but stop at a place like this and ask the question of you. Uh, If someone were to ask you, what disciple would you be? Are you the curious one? A person who fits in the first category, mostly intrigued by Jesus? I mean, the one you've heard so much about, but you've not necessarily met him personally? If that's you, then my question is, what else does he need to do in order to gain your attraction, to to help you to see him more? I suppose we could say, what's keeping you at arm's length, which is kind of what it is? Come this close and no closer? That's what curiosity does. Or are you looking to him to do something for you? In other words, you're beyond curious now and you're now intellectually invested. You're sitting here Sunday after Sunday, listening online Sunday after Sunday, and you're growing in your intellectual awareness of him and the facts are starting to make sense and the T's are being crossed and the I's are starting to be dotted and you're growing in that way, but your mind is... Uh, Rather, your heart is still at a distance. Your mind is saying this is true, but your heart is saying, ah, I'm just not sure I can put myself that much into all of this because there's still too much uncertainty, just too much at stake for me to go the next step. Or are you that one we just talked about who is both convinced in your mind and in your heart, but you feel you can only follow him secretly because you're like the ones I mentioned that, People, if they learn about you, will ridicule you or ostracize you or condemn you in some way, make fun of you because of what they've seen, what you've seen them do to others. And you know that that happens. Our son, our youngest son, the one I was just mentioning there, talks about how not long ago when he was doing some of his National Guard work, uh, his sergeant uh, found out that I was a pastor and so that was kind of all it took. And so he really uh, ridiculed him pretty heavily, kind of making it sound like fun, but our son was telling me that, no, he wasn't doing it for fun. He was saying some pretty ugly things, just trying to get me all riled up. And those things have a way of keeping us secret, don't they? Because we get afraid of, of what people might think about us who follow this, some would say, crazy man called Jesus, who supposedly does what he does. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the only people who follow them or follow Christianity or Jesus are those weak people, those weak-minded ones who can't really get along in life and make it their own way, and so they have to have some crutch. And so that becomes those groups of people that I would ask you to question yourself about who you fit the category, what category fits best for you, and certainly lastly is the one we want to fit in, which is the true disciple really caring nothing for what the world thinks of you, caring only what the Lord says and desiring to do only what God has asked you to do because you see Jesus for who he truly is. You know him as Lord and Master and you cannot not follow him. And so you both publicly are with him and you are permanently with him. That's what the Lord wants. That's the disciple he's looking for. And so each of these people have a different determination. They have a different reason for why they are what they are. But the Lord wants the ones that we were just talking about. He's looking for those people who will fully embrace him no matter what the cost. And that's exactly what his word tells us. In fact, in the 
Luke's gospel in chapter 14, verse 33, when Jesus is talking about possessions, he says, none of you can be my disciple. Here it is. There's the word. You can't be my disciple. He's talking about a true disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And you know, as we've studied through the text before many times over, that God is saying just that. I'm talking about not just your material possessions, but even those people that you hold most dear to you. There's going to come a point where you have to make a decision. Do I follow the Lord and potentially give up this? Or do I keep with this and say no to the Lord? That's a very dangerous place to be in the second one. This is why Paul could say of himself in Philippians 3.7, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And Paul was an incredibly gifted man, probably more intelligent than any of the other religious leaders of his day, and yet following the wrong God when Christ came along. And so realizing who Jesus fully is, he abandoned everything of his own and would literally eventually in Rome give his head on a chopping block. And it was said of Moses in Hebrews 11, When he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, I don't think you and I have the ability to understand the riches of Egypt in that day where Moses had literally everything at his disposal, far beyond anything that any of us could ever hope to imagine. Pharaoh was more wealthy than any of the richest of the billionaires that the world has ever seen. And Moses was right in line to that. And yet God tells us that Moses was willing to give up all of that for the sake of Christ, having not known Christ, but would certainly follow the Lord because he would know that Christ would be coming. And so when life is over, beloved, I want to ask you this question. What will your headstone read? Now, it's one thing to ask yourself, what will I put on my headstone? But let's ask the question this way. What will God put on your headstone? In other words, if the Lord were the one who are writing or chiseling in the stone, what your discipleship type would be, what would it be? Would he say in his chiseling, here lies one of my curious disciples who questioned everything about me but never made any kind of dedicated step toward me? Would he say, here lies an intellectual disciple who forgot to engage his or her heart? Would he say, here's one of my secret disciples who was more afraid of others finding out than they were of serving me? Or would he say, and again, this is what we want, this is my true disciple who entered into my joy according to Matthew 25, 21. That was the men that Jesus chose. They would become the men who would be those people, all but one, and we haven't gotten to him yet. People who determined in their hearts to follow him no matter what he said, no matter what he did, no matter where he went. But the reality is even the truest of disciples get distracted at times. And that's us, right? We have that problem with our sinfulness. And it's usually over some uncertainty, some fear that comes along, some kind of anxious thing that doesn't make sense to us. 
like what we read next. Look at the next sec of, in our outline here, the distressed disciples. As much as they were following the Lord, they also had questions. Behold, we're, we're told, <clears throat> excuse me, that word behold means suddenly, out of nowhere kind of a thing. There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. Now, just so you know, and you probably have known this if you've studied the scriptures, that in that part of the country, there is what's like our hurricane season from May to October. Up in the northern part of Israel, right at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, there's a large mountain there, and the, the torrents of the wind can come off, and the temperature changes create disturbances along the water that can happen very, very suddenly. <clears throat> and that's what was happening in this particular case. The good news is, though, the Lord of the elements was in the boat. And that's where you want to be, right? You want to be with the Lord in the boat when the troublesome times come. But the disciples still didn't understand who he was. If they did, they wouldn't have thought this or said this. Save us, Lord. We're perishing. I mean, I have to assume that maybe they thought, even if they were believing in who he was, that maybe the thought was creeping in that he didn't really care about them. I mean, why else would they say that? In fact, this is exactly what Mark reveals about them. He says in chapter 438 of his gospel, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Boy, that's a loaded question, isn't it? You know, the irony is they had already seen so much. But yet, even now, after seeing what they had seen and what you and I have studied, they were still uncertain that Jesus could fix or even would fix their predicament or else they wouldn't have said that and you and I are just like that now let's just be honest this morning how many times have we watched Jesus do something amazing in our lives and give him the credit and just believe hands down that it was him and wonder at the same time is he going to help us the next time will he do this again Will he meet my need? And so instead of just trusting him, we go into what we call anxiety or worry. Let's just call it at its basic level. We worry. We get all nervous. And when that grows to a, a certain point of worriedness and upsetness, it turns into sheer panic. I mean, how many of you all have suffered from panic attacks? And believe me, I'm not telling you that's not a real thing. Worry, anxiety, panic is a real thing. It is a real issue. But when we get like that and it comes to our reminder of the Lord, we often will ask, Lord, are you really caring about me? If you really cared about me, I, wouldn't want to, I don't want to be like this. If you really cared about me, you could fix me. You could change this. Well, we surmise that maybe he won't fix it because he just doesn't care. And that's again because we're looking with human eyes and because the Lord doesn't do what we always think he should do, right? In fact, the Lord very seldom ever does what we think he should do, he should <clears throat> do that we want him to do. I remember many times as a kid having opportunities to go to a public swimming pool when we lived on the military base and it was the highlight for me. And it was summer, and we had the freedom to go do that. And lo and behold, it was like a revisit this last weekend of 
the rainstorms. It seemed like the days that we could go, it was storming. And I can remember many times just being so upset and saying, good grief, what's going on? Even this last week, as I told you, I was praying, Lord, you can do this, you can fix this. And Satan tries to creep thoughts into your mind and plant seeds in your mind when God doesn't do what we think he should do. After all, it made perfect sense to me. Our boys hadn't been together like this on a father-son retreat in at least four years. For my youngest son, he and I went alone the last time, four years ago, was the last time we went. Beyond that, we couldn't even remember when all of us were together. And the one weekend we want to go, certainly God must not care. You see how a thought can come like that into our minds? I think that was the disciples at this moment. And again, that's us. But he is the Lord. And he's not obligated to tell us anything about what he's doing. He's God. We can question him all we want, but it's up to him to decide whether he's going to give us the answer or not. And that's why he tells us in verses like you have memorized over the years, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we could almost recite it from heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I'm doing that, Lord. But what about this part? And do not lean on your own understanding. Again, to me, in a simple illustration, Lord, this makes perfect sense. My boys and I haven't been together for years in this trip. This is logical. Just fix the weather. But God says, no, I don't want you to lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge me and I will direct your paths. So God constantly reminds us, this is not about you. This is about me doing what I'm doing and you're to follow me. Now, to be fair, our problem last weekend was just a rain shower. But to the disciples, this wasn't just a rain shower. This was a violent storm. In fact, that's what the word means. Notice the word storm there. Literally, the word in Greek means shaking. One commentator said it would be like taking a bottle full of water and shaking it violently like this. That was the emphasis that God wanted us to see as he wrote this. It was ferocious. In fact, as we just read, Matthew tells us the boat was being covered by the waves. You saw the picture of the boat. Those are pretty big waves. Mark says in chapter 4, verse 37, that the waves were breaking over the edge of the boat. And you know what happens when that happens? Water begins to fill up. I really don't think they had a bilge pump in there pumping the water out. And so apparently, at least we could assume this, that the boat began to sink. Now let's just put it in perspective again and get the picture right. Don't forget we're already told that not only is this a horrendous storm, but now it's evening. And you know what happens in the evening? It starts getting dark. And being out on the water in the nighttime is not a fun place to be if you're in a little dinghy like that in a violent storm. My wife and I, kind of in our married life, certainly have grown up on the lake, and you know that. We've loved that over the years, and there have been many times we have enjoyed the beauty of the lake in the daytime. But one of the things we've often joked about is, hey, why wouldn't we be out here right now in the middle of the night? And that's in a calm lake, in a boat with a motor, just off the shore. And we both look at each other and go, I ain't doing that. Because it's intimidating. Well, now imagine you're in a little fishing boat and you're in the middle of a huge lake and this storm has come up and it looks like you're going to sink. 
My mom told me of a storm one time that she and my dad were in on a ship. They were literally on their honeymoon as they had gotten married at Fort Belvoir up here in Alexandria. Dad was going to be stationed in Germany. And so for their honeymoon, they took a cruise across the big pond. About halfway over, a storm came up and it was so violent, which I'm sure Craig can attest to, being in the Navy for years, that the ship began to toss and to turn and they had to strap everything down. Plates were sliding this way and that way and eventually they couldn't even come out of their rooms. And she said when the ship would do its dip in the, in the trough, the back end of the ship would completely come out of the water and the, the, the screws or the propellers would just shudder the entire ship. And she says it was terribly frightening. Again, I'm sure I've been there many times. Well, imagine being in a little boat. And so just understand that this was a mighty storm, violent enough for fishermen to be scared. These guys lived their life on the water. No doubt had been in many storms. And they were so afraid, they did a really dumb thing. And that's what happens when we get afraid. We do dumb stuff, right? Amen? You know what they did? They rebuked the Lord. Everybody go like this. That's not a good idea. They rebuked the Lord. They said, don't you care? Aren't you concerned? Won't you save us? I mean, they were at the end of their rope. That's what happens when panic sets in. I mean, they thought all the hope was lost. Let's ask the obvious question. How many times have you rebuked the Lord? Because he's not fixing what you want him to fix. He's not doing what you want him to do. Or you've at least been tempted to say to the Lord, don't you care? Let's think of some scenarios. Like when you watch your loved ones suffer. Debbie and I have a friend who, more of acquaintances I guess, she's more friends with the the lady. She passed away uh, last year, maybe two years ago of cancer. Her husband... um, had to watch her go downhill, un, unable to do anything. Both of them believers, thank the Lord. But that's a challenging situation. Let's take something more or less significant, but still significant. You watch your life savings dwindle down to nothing in your bank account because of no fault to your own, of your own. Some circumstances happen that caused you to drain everything and you don't know how you're going to survive on your, the next meal. When your child or grandchild gets cancer or something dreadful like that. When your son or daughter has a need that only God can fix and he doesn't seem to be concerned about that need, at least to you. When you do all you can to reach out to a loved one, a child or some other significant person, maybe a spouse who's wayward and you get no response and you wonder from God, are you listening? Do you hear me? When you get the report that someone you care about is going through some tragic circumstance, when you've worked so hard in your life that you, you've made good plans for your life and you're preparing for the day that you're going to be able to retire together, you and your spouse, and only to get to the end of it and it doesn't work out that way. Our sister-in-law was like that with her parents. While we were still living in Lynchburg, I was associate pastor there. Uh, her parents had worked for many years and Her dad had just recently retired from a a great job and they were looking at spending their retirement years together. It didn't take long before she began to feel ill and wasn't sure what was going on and goes to the doctor and long story short, she was diagnosed with ALS. 
If you've ever had anybody that you've known with that, it's a dreadful disease. Just slowly taking the person as they can't speak anymore and walk and eventually their body just shuts down. And so that was their retirement. Where are you, God? What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. This is not logical. I have to imagine that's exactly where these men were. And to rub salt into the wound, so to speak, you know where Jesus was? In the midst of their panic attack? He's asleep. He's asleep. He's asleep in the boat. You have to imagine these guys looking at this with the water splashing on him. It had to have been, right? I know we've heard stories that there was a little cubby and stuff and he was probably in there and never saw it or whatever. But listen, when a boat's doing this, <laughs> you're going to know. But evidently Jesus was so exhausted from what he had been doing and because, listen, he's God, a little bitty storm wasn't going to affect him, right? I remember a guy I used to work with, he, we used to call him Buttercup. That was it. His first name was Butter. His last name was Cup. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we called him Buttercup. He had the mind of about a 14-year-old boy, I guess. We worked on a farm together, and uh, he and I would often go with our boss to carry horses across the U.S. We literally would go across the U.S., El Paso, uh, various places. And the boss was famous for falling asleep at the wheel. And so the three of us would sit in the cab in the front, and I was 16, 17 years of age, and... Um, the boss, you could always tell when he's starting to get a little tired, he would start rearing back like this, holding the steering wheel and, you know, trying to keep his eyes open and things like that. And, and, um, Buttercup at one time told me of a story where just the two of them were on a trip and the boss started doing that. And Buttercup yelled out to him. He says, Hey, like this. And he says, what, 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 what? He says, I just wanted you to see this wreck we're getting ready to have. (laughs) I've never forgotten that. I kind of think that that's what the disciples were thinking. Hey, I started to disturb you, but uh, we don't want you to miss this drowning that's about to happen. You know? So, (laughs) I think it was that kind of situation. They were panicked. And we do some weird things when we're panicked. But we have to ask the question, why do you think the Lord was asleep? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. These are the main ones in my mind, at least. You might be able to come up with some others. He was asleep to show the total need that the disciples had in him. Total need. And what better place to show that than in the storms of life, right? The Lord must bring us to a place of no return. I think he wanted the disciples to know that in the midst of the ocean, or this lake rather, with the storm crashing in around them and the water coming in the boat, he was preaching a message to them through his sleep, which was, you can only survive this life with me. You cannot do this in your storms. I must be there with you. Meaning we got to get to the place where we cry out to him with total abandonment. And we don't care who hears us. We don't care who's privy to it. Because we know he's the only one that can help us. In fact, salvation, beloved, if you've never given your life to the Lord, salvation comes on the premise of this. 
It is the idea and understanding that no soul will ever cry out to God to rescue them for eternity who doesn't first realize they are totally lost without Him. Totally lost. It's that flat on the back idea where the only thing you can see is up. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's at that point there's nothing else that can help you. I have a friend of mine who, when he was 31 years of age, um, started having some pains in his throat. And it lasted for a month or so. And he finally went to his dad, dad who was a doctor. And uh, his dad gave him some prescription for it. And he said he kind of just got used to it. But then he noticed a couple months later that it was still there. And so he said to his dad again, he says, Dad, you know that medicine you gave me for my throat? Well, that sore is still there. So his dad looked in his throat and he says he kind of turned all doctor on me. And um, he says, I got a friend of mine. I'd like to have him look at this for you tomorrow. I'll see if I can get him an appointment, get you an appointment. And sure enough, he did. The next day, the friend saw him, and friend looks down his throat and does his testing and whatnot, leaves the room, comes back in. He says, Well, it's bad. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not good. He says, You have a throat cancer that's taking over your throat. And he said, Here's the. The prognosis, uh, we'll do surgery, probably about three of them. Uh, and that hopefully will get you to some place where you can live with this and we'll hope for the best that, that we can take care of this. And he said, long story short, came down to one surgery that lasted for about nine hours. And by the time it was over, he had half a tongue left. A lot of the roof of his mouth was gone. They had to actually do some grafts from his chest muscle here took a big part of this chest muscle and pulled it up over his shoulder and attached it to, to give him some semblance of recognition again there. And um, he says, I'll never forget, he said, the first prayer that I really believe I ever prayed in my life was the day where I found that out. He says, I went to my car after the doctor told me, and he says, I sat in my car, and he said, I sobbed, and I sobbed, and I sobbed uncontrollably. And I knew that God was the only one that could fix it. And he did. And that man is in his 60s now. Still has to go back for cancer checkups, but God has done it. And praise the name of the Lord that he's done that. My point is to help us to see that God wants us to live at a place in life where we have nowhere else to turn but him. But he wants us to live that way always, in everything. The second thing is, is that through the storms, he proves he's God. And that should be pretty self-explanatory by doing only what he can do. This storm was a great example of, look, guys, I am God and only I can do what you have just witnessed. Our brother-in-law, Frankie, as you have known and have been praying for, uh, is doing much better. Uh, he's got a long ways to go. We don't know what he's going to be in the end. Uh, he's back home. You got that latest update. Uh, but there's no reason for him to be alive. When he fell off that tower, he should be dead for everything that every, any human being would say. But by God's divine grace and his providence, he's still alive. He's back home as of this last week. And so far, things are going fairly well. He has to have 24-hour care. Um, but God does the amazing in the times that we have no ability to do anything. You've seen my sister-in-law's post, Debbie's sister, and uh, the praise that she gives to God and how God is bringing glory to himself through it. And that's how God works, isn't it? 
He takes our tragedies and our things that we don't understand and he makes something for his glory out of it. And that's what he's doing here. So let's get back to the text here and we'll get through this quickly. Being awakened now, the Lord doesn't panic like the other boys are, but does the unthinkable. Notice in verse 26, he rebukes them. He says, why are you afraid? That's a great question. Almost like saying, I kind of see it in my mind like he's going, why did you guys wake me up? I was getting the best sleep I've had in a long time. I mean, it's kind of a, a ridiculous question when you think about it from a human perspective. As you think of it from just that, their perspective, their answer must have been pretty obvious. We're going to die. That's why we woke you up. This is not a great news flash. But notice the Lord doesn't budge on their worry. He doesn't go to them and say, you know what, guys, I'm sorry. You're right. I should be more sensitive. You're human. I'm God. I get it. I'll do better next time. You know, He doesn't do any of that. He does just the opposite. He says, you have such little faith. Here's the problem, guys. You have little faith. You have some faith, but it's very little. Obviously, they had some because they were following him and they were learning in a right way, but he's really giving the bottom line here. And I hope you hear what he's saying. The Lord is saying the source, listen, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. The source of our fear is faithlessness. Now, I'm not saying that having faith will accomplish everything, although that's what the Lord said. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it would, right? I'm not teaching a prosperity theology here. I'm just simply saying, when we find ourselves fearful over anything, there's a reason for it. And the Lord is telling us it's because you have very little faith. No matter what the circumstance is. Isn't that what he's been teaching? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. I'm not going to read all of this, but you know the story. He says, don't be worried about your life. This is in his sermon. You have nothing to worry about. What you eat or drink or your clothing... Look at the birds. Look at the grass. God takes care of all of that. You remember we studied through all this. And who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? In other words, in the boat, the Lord's saying to him, look, guys, you're worried about something you can't fix and you're not going to save your life by worrying about it. So why are you worried about it? Let tomorrow have enough worry for itself. The reality is, everybody up to this point now had gotten an example of what he had taught on the sermon on the mount with his words, now the disciples had their turn. It was their turn to get the lesson, to grow their faith. They needed a tangible test because they were failing miserably. They were proclaiming one thing with their mouth, but their hearts weren't really getting it. And so Jesus is saying something like this. Listen, when I'm with you, you don't need to worry. I'm saying it that way very specifically because I want you to hear this. When I'm with you, you don't have any need to worry. Now, what's the default to that? Are you saying, Pastor, there are times the Lord's not with us? No, I'm saying just the opposite. That's why I'm saying it that way. When the Lord is with us, we never have an opportunity, I never need to worry. The Lord says in Matthew 28:16, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. His very name, Emmanuel, in Matthew 1, means God with us. 
The point is, he wanted the disciples to understand he was with them. God was in the boat. And he's saying the same thing to you and me. Haven't you seen enough to trust me yet? Haven't I given you enough reason to enable you to trust me, to believe in me? Have you not witnessed enough of my power in your life, through the life of others, to know that you can trust me? And I think this, beloved, I think the Lord was even saying to them through this nonverbal way that, boys, even if I let you drown, you will be with me. And I will be with you. Can I give you some testimony of how the Lord has worked in us? I'm talking about as a church this last year. Let me show this slide here, if you will. This comes from last week's budget meeting. And it's not going to look like anything real fancy. And for those of you on the screen, I'm sorry about this. You can't see my pointer, but at the top of the chart, uh, you guys will see an up and down. This is just from January of this year. This purple line right in the middle that goes straight across with no zigzags is the budget number that we try to hit every every uh, month. You'll see the number there. And these are the ups and downs. This dotted line is the graph of how it kind of fluctuates. My point in bringing this up is when COVID first hit, we were really wondering what was going to happen. And I'm just being honest. Back in last March, we were saying, okay, This could potentially be the end of Laurel Hill, right? None of us knew. But God has sustained us. That's a testimony to the Lord. Now, we can take credit for it, but God worked in your hearts to continue to give so that the church would continue to go on. Right now, are we in a little bit of a deficit? Yeah, it's like a couple hundred dollars uh, a month. That's nothing, comparatively speaking. I'm not going to give out any information, but just some other illustrations. My wife does the books for 26 different churches. She does the books for the state of West Virginia convention. And without fail, she never tells me details. That's not my business. But without fail, the churches that have been faithful, God has sustained in miraculous ways this year. It's just amazing to look at these stories. Last week when we were down at the wilds, one of the guys stood up who used to be one of the caretakers of the property and now he's moved up into a different position. He was saying that we have a $4 million budget for the camp. And he says last year we also didn't know what was going to happen. They had to do some changes and to furlough a couple people, but nobody went without in that furlough. They had to find some other jobs temporarily, but they kept their insurance going and all that, their retirement and everything. And he says... Throughout it all, churches began to give more and more to the camp to the tune of $400,000 that they'd never received before. And he's saying, we were not able to do camp, but yet the churches were faithful in giving to us. And I went up to him after the meeting and I said, Rick, can I just share this? Or Doug, sorry, can I share this with the church? And so that's why I'm sharing it with you. And I don't know all the details of everything, but he says it's just been amazing. Just last week, Neil and Thea Donaldson were out on the playground and a couple was out there enjoying the playground and walk up to them and say, oh, here, we want to give a donation. And they handed him a check for $1,000. I was standing right there two Sundays ago as Hamp was getting ready to call me up as he normally does. 
And I felt something in my coat pocket and I reached in my coat pocket and there was an old card in there from a person and I, I didn't remember it being there, but it was pretty crumpled. It evidently had been there for a while. Open it up and there's a $50 bill in there. I'm like, well, y'all may want to come sit up here. <laughs> I'm just saying, listen, I'm just saying, when are we going to get it? Right? Did you hear the Lord saying that to the disciples? Hey guys, when are you going to get it? I'm God. I can do this. I think he's saying, let's not be the intellectual disciple. Don't be the curious disciple. Don't be the secret disciple. What I'm looking for is a disciple who will truly follow me and never make a decision out of fear. But way too often, that's exactly what we do. And we call it wisdom. And there's an element of that. Fear says, oh, we can't spend on this or that right now. We can't do this or that right now because if we don't have it, we won't, we, we, we won't you know, and we just come with all kinds of reasons. And my question is, when did God leave the boat? That's, his, that's what he's saying. Guys, I'm with you. I'm in it. I'm here for you. I'm not going to abandon you. Now, what he could have said, is what you and I would have said if we were Jesus. We would have said, why'd you wake me up? Oh, Lord, we're drowning. Stinks for you. That's what we would have said, right? But that's not what the Lord did. So I'm just saying that the only reason we don't see more happening is because of our lack of faith. It's not because of God. It's because of Him. If we need something, God will give us the money. If we're following him, that's all we have to make sure of. Are we following him? If we need to do something, God will provide it. If we fail, let's fail with faith, not with anything else. Certainly not with fear. In fact, just once, could we all just stand up and say, I don't know how God's going to do this, whatever it might be, but we're going to trust him to get us through it. Wouldn't that be exciting? Because God is able. So ask yourself the question, if the Lord were to ask me why I'm, a worry, why I'm worried and afraid, what would you say? In other words, if you're standing there with God and he says to you, just to you, kind of like taking your face and looking at you and saying, Look, I'm not talking to everybody else, I'm talking to you, what are you afraid of? If God asked you that question, what would you say to him? Well, you'd come up with a list of things and you'd come up with things that you think he would say in turn to you but the reality is, the reality is, the reason that you're afraid, he would say, is because you really just don't trust me. That's the bottom line. You really just don't trust me. Which is very dangerous ground to be on because Hebrews 11 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. Now I, for one, and I know you do too, want to please the Lord, right? And what does God say is required to please him? Faith. He didn't say wisdom. He didn't say knowledge. He didn't say facts. He said faith. Faith is what's required to please him. And John says in 1 John 5.10, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Whoa. Now we're playing hardball. Every time you and I say, God, I don't believe you, or we go into that worried, panic, fearful, anxiety mode, we're saying to God, you're a liar. You're a liar. 
I can't imagine any one of us ever saying to the Lord as he were to manifest himself in all of his glory right in front of us and say, you're a liar. Would you? I don't think so. But that's what we're saying to him when we go into the worried mode. And that's what the boys were doing in the boat. The Lord didn't need to wake up. He had it. It was all in control. And thankfully, God is gracious because in my mind, he could have vaporized them right on the spot. And just, you're done. And just, you know. But notice what he does in verse 26. He got up and he rebuked the wind and the sea and it became perfectly calm. You know what he said? Okay, guys, I get it. I know you really struggle with this. So he gets up and he calms the storm. And Mark says this, he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. Not just a, oh, a settled kind of thing, but instantly calm. Leaving the disciples perplexed because only God could do such a thing, right? And guess what? Jesus is going, hello, I'm God. I can do it. But yet they were still confused. Look at the fourth one here, dismayed disciples, verse 27. They were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? To which now you and I want to go, hold it, boys. This ain't no man. This is the God man right there in the boat with you. Don't you kind of just see yourself doing that? You kind of want to stop the film for a second and go, whoa, stop, 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 right here. Insert this right here. This is God. But yet they were perplexed. Bless their hearts. And I was telling the early service, you can say that when you're going to say something negative about somebody. As long as you start it with bless your heart, it's okay to say something negative. I'm totally kidding about that. That's not true. Okay, I'm just being silly. Listen to this, though. I want you to hear this. This is so powerful. The disciples at that moment were no longer afraid of the storm. You know who they were afraid of? The guy in the boat. You know how I know that? Because Mark tells us that. Mark 4.41. They became very much afraid. Now, why did they become afraid? The storm is over. I mean, the storm that was going to kill them and crash them and drown them and all that stuff is gone. Why are they afraid? Because of the guy in the boat. Who is this, Mark says, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Beloved, that's a really good place to live. I'm talking about in total fear of the Lord in a healthy way. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You want to be afraid of somebody? Be afraid of the Lord. He can pull the plug on everything. Job said in Job 42, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear talking to the Lord, but now my eyes see you, therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. In other words, when Job finally got to the place where God began to question him a little bit about what he thought was right, and Job couldn't give him an answer, all of a sudden Job says, "Uh, this probably wasn't a good idea to have this conversation, so I'm going to just repent now. 
Isaiah says, as he's seeing the Lord in chapter 6, high and lifted up, exalted in the fullness of his glory, he says, woe of me, woe is me, because I am, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, Isaiah says, I'm toast, because I've now seen the Lord. When Daniel had a vision of God, he heard the sound of his words in Daniel 10. And as soon as I heard the words, Daniel said, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. He's talking about the right kind of heart. He's not arguing for a posture here in prayer. He's saying this is the heart of the true disciple who lives his or her life fearful of the Lord in reverence so much that they cannot but not stay on the ground face down. And Peter shows that same response. You remember earlier when Jesus called him and he had just Jesus had just done the miracle of filling Peter's nets after he had been in the boat all night fishing. And Peter's response was, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. That's the right heart. You know what I think? I think it was a pretty quiet ride back to the shore. I think it was pretty quiet. Where the disciples did a lot of soul searching. I think what we need to know, beloved, is this is our our God. We need to be afraid of him in a healthy way. Full of faith. Going wherever he says to go. Doing whatever he says to do. Knowing that we're not following a man. We're following God. Brother Iman and Mary. Remember Iman Lolos and Mary? Called me the other day. And um, he, I got his permission to be able to say this. He called me and said he's been wrestling with something, and that is what God wants them to do with their ministry. And so um, uh, he said to me, I want to talk to you about this, and he wants to come here and talk to you, the church, about this. But he says, I've been praying for the last couple of years about what God would have us to do. And he says, in my prayer, and you know, Iman's a really funny guy. He's got that thick accent, and um, I can't repeat his accent. I can't make that kind of... Uh, translational sound, but he said to me, he said, so I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying and all of a sudden one day I really feel like the Lord says to me, okay, I want you to go home. And he's like, go home? Like home, home? Now understand home is in the Middle East. And I'm not going to give his location, but in the Middle East. And he says, understand this, Pastor Bruce, when people leave the Middle East where I'm from and come to America, they don't go back. I mean, they just don't go back, right? It's just too good here. But God has said, no, I want you to go back. And so he's planning on taking his family back to a spiritually war-torn place, but also a very physically war-torn place. Why? Because God has called him. And he goes. And that's what disciples do. So the next time we're afraid, we just need to remember the Lord is with us, right? He's not gotten out of the boat because we belong to him and he cares for us. Listen, let's close with this. 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. Listen. Casting all your anxiety on him. And I know what you want to do. You want to do the yeah, but thing. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. No, 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 no. All your anxiety on him. Why, Lord? Look what Peter says. Because he cares for you. 
He cares for you. And he can do it. He can take it, he can fix it, he can make it work. Now that may be through a lot of different means, but God can do it. Amen? All right. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, not only because you are God, and that's enough, but we thank you you are God who cares about his creation. Lord, as we look back just a a moment or two ago, as I said, we, we think about the disciples and how if one of us were asleep in the boat, we'd be all irritated and wonder why somebody had the audacity to wake us up from our sleep. But yet you again show the side of you that we so longingly desire, which is your your mercy and your grace. You correct. You're straight to the point. You don't beat around the bush. But at the same time, you lovingly guide us through that correction. Lord, quite honestly, many of us need correcting. We need correcting in the sense of having more faith. There are many times in life and I know it will happen this week, where we will be tempted to wonder whether you care about us. There's someone sitting here listening online right now who's wondering if God is real. And they'll ask the questions. And so, Lord, we pray that in your own way you will be merciful, but yet you will be straight and clear because eternity is dependent on it. Thank you, Father, for your word that you've left for us. Thank you that you give us discernment to understand it. And now we pray that you would help us to go live it in the full assurance that you are with us and that we don't have to live this life in fear. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said.